Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, pod people. Leo Phillips here with This Must Be The Gig, your little backstage pass to the world of live music. Every single week, we bring you fascinating conversations from the beating heart of the performance scene with some of the most exciting names on this gigantic, big, spongy globe. We talk passion, we talk first concerts, last concerts, and everything in the juicy center. This week, we're delighted to share a conversation with one of our favorite musicians and Consequence of Sounds composer of the year, Daniel Lopatin. So what we get to chat about is a lot. Daniel discusses his work with the Safdie brothers on his mesmerizing score to the Adam Sandler starring Uncut Gems, the tragic comedy, the chaotic fest, <laughs> and the incongruous ability of Vangelis indebted new age tones to produce anxiety and the push and pull between film scoring and his work as One or Tricks Point Never. Again, a beloved artist over here and just completely blown away and thrilled. And what a time! At the end of the year, at the end of the decade, at the end of this run, the movie is out. Constant companion here at TMBGG Studios, Engineer Adam, what do you think? I think that Daniel is one of my favorite artists of the he decade. Is. How do we not gush R- about R him? R plus seven, it's replica, amazing, amazing stuff. And then this film was a anxiety, thrill ride, heart stopping. It just never stops happening. That's a weird thing to say about a movie, but that's exactly how it felt. It just was constant. I and especially your... his composition. Yes. And I loved your idea about uh, what you said about Kevin Garnett and how both of us were blown away by the fact that we forgot he was even acting. Oh, he yeah. Was so in, he was so his character himself. Yes. That he just And Kevin Garnett molded. is such a legendary basketball personality that it just... I assumed he would be that, you know, intense. We're talking too much about basketball now. Let's talk a bit more about the movie. Lakeith Stanfield, phenomenal. Boy, thank you. This is a a combined one, two, three. Thank Thank you. you. 
uh, he really just turned that shit upside down. If you want to know more about what we think about the score and a few takeaways from the conversation that we've highlighted, just head to consequenceofsound.net and be sure to check out this piece in addition to the chat today. And a little bit later, we'll be highlighting one of the best concerts of the week presented by StubHub. That's true. And so this is such an all-encompassing, completely consuming, like quicksand type of conversation in the good way. Quicksand, good way. It's like sinking into a diamond-encrusted quicksand. Let us not be delayed. This is me and Daniel in conversation and uh, lauding his honor. Enjoy! It has been one of those, like, technology days. It's not wanted to work, as you know, how those go. Know, Always fun. Like every day. Is, oh, yeah. <laughs> every day has become a technology day where nothing works. Every day I'm complaining. And I'm so dependent on it, which is, <laughs> which is what the... That's the modern condition, I think. Computers are... The problem is they don't know when things can potentially go wrong like with the wi-fi drops the problem is they don't care (laughs) they don't don't give a shit about me about you fuck but they can still hear (laughs) us so i also don't want to be you know (laughs) (laughs) i know so you don't want to say anything no i don't want to say anything because i have i have done that and it has conspired against me have you seen that video i actually just watched it weirdly an hour ago and my heart is like racing. It's this video of this um this robot lady. She she was interviewed. I don't know what her name is. It's that main oh, yeah. robot woman. And she looks really lifelike, even though she has no hair and like her arms are bionic and stuff. Um Yeah, and, she looks lifelike and her answers are like so boring that yeah, it's exactly it's like, like a reality. Human. It's like really good. <laughs> She's perfectly boring. She's perfectly human and boring. Yeah. And also like a little bit snarky. So that kind of gave Yeah, me a little rude and a funny. Little rude. Yeah. Yeah, like what the <laughs> fuck is that? Like what the fuck, robot? Anyway, it made me feel like the end is coming. I I don't think I've yeah, ever been afraid of robots taking over until I watched that video and was like, oh, <laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely palpable now. Are you afraid of robots? I'm sorry for asking this question. Uh, I don't know. No, I'm not particularly afraid because I don't, I am, I'm so like willfully in denial of death. I'm just yeah. like, a, you know, like a 12 year old who thinks that <laughs> everything, you know, and just like everything is going to work out somehow and I'll live to 700 years like a cool vampire. Yeah, I quite like uh, that. Living in, in uh, naivete. Childlike <laughs> state. No, it's pretty good. It's, it's definitely... How's that, working, well. how's that working out for you? How's your backache? How, how's life going? <laughs> uh, yeah, those are the those are those are apparent. Again, I'm just perpetually in denial. Actually, no, it's I'm really trying to preserve my knees. I feel like the knees are the really the, the first knees. thing to go. That's what I hear a lot of people complaining about. So that's where I'm really putting in my focus. 
Oh, so you you you're not even complaining about it. You just hear others are complaining, so you think, okay, this is something that might go first. I mean, maybe your knee, <laughs> maybe your knees will go. Do you do you feel like they're going? <laughs> I can hear them. They're cracking. going. No, they're de- yeah, them. they're making sounds. Yeah, all kinds of interesting <laughs> things are happening. Do you worry about that though, in terms of like the fact that you are kind of in a volatile situation when you are playing live? You know, like anything can go wrong. Like lights could fall on your head. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not trying to make you worried. It's so true. No, you're just literally sitting underneath these like massive metal beams with lights and all this like crap is all around you. And these people that you've never never met, um, never met that you you're 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 like I don't know if I can trust you. Yeah, you seem like you already hate me, (laughs) and. and then, you know, to top that off, you're in some foreign countries, you're already oh, feeling God. a little strange. And yeah, life is so hard. Life is so hard. <laughs> okay. Great. Thank you no, so much I, for the I, chat. Talk to you later. No, okay. Yeah, that's no, it. Life, is, life is hard. I think I'm faced with my mortality every day because I feel like my OCD has started to kick in in terms of worrying. Like, because I, I have a very overactive imagination. And I watch way yeah. too many movies. I think it's like starting to filter yeah. into my life now. So if I'm walking across the street with my dog, I'm like, you know, <laughs> I want to like park. At least you have a dog. That's true. That's she really can, great. She can it's save a great me. Start. No, that's true. That yeah. is true. She can save me. You have me. a companion. Man, I swear, <laughs> life before her. I don't know what that was. I, I'm really, I'm not joking. I, I feel like she's oh. given me meaning. Like in a lot of ways, a, a non-judgmental companion. Do you have a dog? Do you have a pet? Uh, I have a gecko. That's okay. about all the. That's, that's about all the responsibility I can handle. What have? What? Yeah. I mean, you you you're a busy you're a busy fella. I kind of understand that. Is it? Is there a reason why you don't have any pets, or is it just because it hasn't happened? Well, I I think it's I think it's um, just like child lack of childhood. Uh, experience with pets and grew up in a right. in an immigrant fa- family where there, it was like the priority was just like survival and some of some of the perks of that is you know apparent in some of my behavior but there's a downside as well where you really really do kind of turn inwards a lot you kind of just like you're kind of outside of your immediate concerns for family or whatever you kind of like are like i don't care that's not my problem or whatever and we just never had any pets so i'm trying to unlearn some of those yeah those um bad habits as they get older hence the crest of gecko yeah (laughs) but you're right though i suppose it is a luxury having that in your life there's a lot of like little things that you don't notice when you're younger that if stripped away, it's really just the necessity of like eating every day, making sure there's food on, on the table, going to work, going to school. So like the bare things. For but that sure. makes sense. Where are your parents from? Where's your family from? Uh, from Russia. Oh, my mm-hmm. mom's family is from there. My grandfather. Oh, where at? I have absolutely no idea. He Well, his family were murdered in the Holocaust. And so I didn't, we didn't get many documents from his side of the family. And then he passed when my mum was like 19. A lot of our family history is also shrouded in mystery because 
Yeah. They came over and it was kind of like this fresh start and everyone's like, let's just get away from that shit, you know? Exactly. Let's forget it. Especially when you're in like, um, I don't know, the cliches like the South and the, the Midwest part of the country. There's just such kindness, generosity. And for a Northeasterner, a uh, child of Refusnik, uh, Russian immigrant Jews, I'm always just like, oh, my God, I don't know how to handle. You're so nice. I, <laughs> I, I feel like I must look like I imagine myself in that moment as like Nosferatu immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, you must see me as this like horrific <laughs> pale closed off <laughs> you know i mean that's how uh, i see you, un- but... ungrateful person yeah, yeah thank yeah. you yeah. Um, it's part of my image yeah no i get i you know it's, you, you you are shrouded in mystery i get it no. i understand <laughs> no but i know what you mean though I, was music something then that was a part of your childhood like do you remember what kind of music was playing was that even oh yeah did that even exist very much so yeah that was that was that was definitely the focus. Um, I and I'm painting a picture of our families, like a, like the Adams family. They really weren't. I mean, we had our we had our our highs and lows. But, yes, of course. But music was definitely like a value that was kind of fundamental. Everyone, my sister, my both of my parents, everyone played piano. My dad wasn't um, trained in any way. He was just kind of. Someone that I think he picked up an accordion first, and then learned to play piano, and found himself in this rock band in the in, in Leningrad when he was in uh, university there. Oh wow! Okay. And so he so he had that kind of experience. He was in like a you know it was like a, a band of some repute there. Yes. And uh, my mom was a, a kind of a, um, a cosmopolitan trained classically trained uh woman from leningrad so she had she had a different she had a sort of different approach and different things to to share with us so i sort of between the two of them i kind of got different things and then my sister was we have a big age gap between the two of us she's nine years older than me so when i was a child she was like an angsty teen so of course she was like soaking up all the music that was you know feeding into that angst and I was just kind of looking over her shoulder and being like, what's that? And watching 120 minutes and like <laughs> checking out metal bands and like studying everything that every picture mm-hmm. she cut out of spin and spin and put on her wall. So I had like a really, really uh, rich and sort of diverse look into music from a, from, from a young age. So that was really, really formative, I think. That definitely resonates with me because with my older brother and sister, I was also looking over their shoulders when they were like, I ravings and stuff. I was like, oh, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and th- I definitely discovered a lot of music through them. But how else were you discovering things? Like, did you have favorite soundtracks? Like, what kind of music? Like, how did you find oh, yeah. the type that you related to? You know, that music that resonated with yeah. you? Yeah. So, like, a lot of, I think, like, a lot of kids, my, it was my my dad was so obsessed with the Beatles, but then he also had like this uh, jazz fusion collection on dub tape. So it was just like Mahavishnu Orchestra and Return of Forever and all this other stuff that was just instrumental, like electric jazz from that period of time. And I was listening to all that stuff and I was um, always really, really drawn to, to, to sounds. Like I was really, really, and nobody else in my family really 
mean, that stuff was just there because it was in the music, but I, I don't think anyone else was kind of cultivating that. Somehow I just got drawn to that. And so, you know, it was like all the strange moments in Beatles songs or like a revolution number nine thing or like all their weird production stuff. I would love the sort of like negative space of music so much. It was like catnip for my, I didn't understand really what I was hearing, but I loved it. And then the sort of sample and hold synth stuff or sequencer mm -hmm. stuff that I would pick up on in some of those jazz fusion tapes too. I didn't really, I couldn't really comprehend it, but it created this really intense hallucination in my mind. Like I remember feeling moved by it. And then years later, wanting to understand how how that worked and then my dad had this synthesizer that he was using for his gigs and he was just using it to get like an organ sound okay. or you know like a, a string sound or whatever but it was you know it was just like rolling juno 16 and it had like pretty good capabilities for you know generating all kinds of abstract sounds and just doing your own sound design stuff and so i would just mess around with it in the basement and once I found that arpeggio button and or whatever and started changing around the speeds and hearing this really like kind of cubic version of, you know, tonality and this kind of rhythmic and cubic sound, I was like, oh, wow, this is really, really, this is what I heard on those records. This is how you make it kind of. So I think I just kind of was drawn to it a little bit like a moth to, to flame. Was it because you could create some sort of, like with your imagination, you could create some sort of fill or moment in there? Or did, was it just because it was a moment where you knew other people weren't paying attention to that? Like what, what is striking about details for you? That's a good question. Maybe I did. I, I did always sort of have this bratty kind of need to be different. Yeah, um, <laughs> as we all do. So maybe that was part of it, honestly. Maybe it was just kind of like everyone else was kind of just, seeing it this way and I'm going to see it that way. It, it really could be because I can't think of a single good reason why I would. I mean, there's just so much melody to sort of luxuriate yourself with in music all the time. And there was so much of that, especially because, you know, my mom would sit down and play Chopin and I would hear, you know, there was just so much beauty happening that maybe on some level it's like the the strange stuff, the the sort of the weirded version of music that I was picking up on uh, was just felt fresh. It felt new. And also, even in the music that my sister liked, I remember uh, a record that really, really, really changed the way I was thinking about stuff was Replacements, Don't Tell a Soul. I, it's a record that's like a fantastic sort of late career Replacements record that was criticized when it came out because it had this like really, really overtly 80s kind of pr production quality to it. And everyone trashed it because it was like, this isn't the replacements. They're this like really rough punk band. And now here they are selling out or whatever. And that was always the rap in the 80s. It's just like, okay, you're like this authentic band and let's see how far you can take it before you sell out. And of course, now it's, it's totally um, like that concept. Does, I feel like that concept might not even apply for young people starting Bands. But anyway, long story short, I remember somehow being able to comprehend that a thing to do in music was to essentially keep some pedal going atmospherically in the music while other things change, while the melody changed, and that pedal could just be some sustained tone that was kind of like referred to the tonal center of this 
piece of music and it was usually like kind of tucked away in the background and big and atmospheric. And maybe it was like something that was happening with pedals or a synth or whatever, but that created this deep, deep, deep cavernous kind of sad, washed out, melancholic universe behind the music, behind the melody. And I was like, that's where I want to be. That's where I'm from. <laughs> right. I don't know how that happened though. Pause the podcast. It's time to step away from the conversation. Just a moment. I know this is annoying as hell because you want to get back to it. But ever so briefly, we're going to share a little something we like to call the live show of the week. So if you're thinking while you're listening and you're on your commute and you're at home and you don't know what to do this week, we got you, baby. We are so excited to be back once again with another amazing performer to gift all of you lovely listeners with. Each week, we highlight one of the most heart-thumping events we could find, and we share it with you pod people to go out there and head to the show. It's actually a good little way for us to kind of quantify what's happening out there and then go, mm, maybe we should go to those shows. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a sneak peek of where we're exactly. going to be headed. <laughs> oh, that's a little bit scary. <laughs> so this week, we're highlighting a set of eight festive performances from Yola Tango. Also, again, a TMBTG favorite. Absolutely. It's the Indie Legends 2019 Hanukkah, Hanukkah. celebration. So, Happy Hanukkah, everybody. <laughs> every year. Why am, I, why am I like this? You're why? the most wonderful. What the, so why every why? year, these Hanukkah shows always seem just like yeah, the tell most me, Tell me fun. about them. I've never actually... Uh, it's the first time. There are surprise openers. There's music. There's comedy. There's, Where is it? They're always in New York, unfortunately. Okay. That's fine. You know, if you're in another part of the country celebrating Hanukkah with family there, it might be hard to, to pry yourself away to for these shows. Oh, that's where <laughs> no, you Well, yeah. Okay. But I highly recommend you do if you have the chance. Last year's guests across the eight nights included... Sharon Van Etten oh. and John Oliver and Bill Callahan oh. and Jim Gaffigan and the Sun Ra Orchestra. This one That's of the all most one year. One year, live. all of that incredible stuff. When should we maybe book tickets for New York? <laughs> what are the dates? The 22nd to the 29th of December. Oh, shite. That's like in a few days. Exactly. Okay, okay. That's eight shows across eight nights. And if you wow. want to get in on the excitement of those shows or any other shows, you can head over to StubHub via cosradio.lv slash StubHub. And find the best selection of tickets to all of the hottest shows. Once again, that's cosradio.lv slash StubHub. And while we're talking about important things you need to do while you're on the internet, let's talk about how you need to go over to Apple Podcasts, to Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars. Go do it. It's important. It's a holiday gift to mm -hmm. all of us, Mary everything and another holiday gift is also if we are asking you to rate us we want to suggest actually another podcast that we love over here called hey riddle riddle oh my and gosh you might as well just go and listen as well they definitely don't need our shout out <laughs> but we thought whilst we're asking you to help us over here and rate and review and subscribe and be there and throw us your stars and give us all your love just disperse it. You have so much. We know. Yeah. It's the holidays. You're allowed to if give out... If I had out, a bell, I would ring it right now. You're allowed to give out 10 stars this holiday season. There you five go. for us, five for JPC, Aaron, and Adel. Go do it. So let us return to this week's interview. Back to me and the wonderful Daniel. Enjoy. I don't think it's like anti what's popular. 
I just think you're looking into places where you could essentially expand on, um, which is kind of what your music sounds like. There's a lot of fluidity to it as well. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think I'm I'm bratty in the sense of like, I want to purposely recede from from people. Like, I don't want to make music that's not for people. It's quite the opposite, actually. I always sort of like whimsically and still do believe that Music is this like wonderfully plastic thing where it's like you kind of can't hide from it and people love it, even, especially when it's challenging. I think there's like nothing more depressing than than doing something with the expectation of, of an audience, like being able to get ahead of it and understand it before it unfolds. I think it's it's like discrediting your audience or like painting a picture of them in your head right. that they can't handle it or something. So it's like I, I never I never... I always wanted to go towards people not away from them, but I did want to, I did kind of want to connect that way. Like, Hey, here's this thing I think is like really magical. Do you agree? And that's been always basically the question for me with, with art in general. I think it's kind of just, I look at everything and think, wow, this person like really, really cared to do this for whatever strange reason. Uh, I wonder. I wonder why. And especially questioning that and having that challenge you whilst you're watching somebody perform. Because sometimes when I'm seeing something mm. that I've never heard before, you, you all you can do is just look at it like in awe, and then later pick it apart as to how the hell did that person even create something like that? What are the things and the elements that they, they used to make you feel that way? But I think that that's exactly the purpose of art, right? It's to put you as the listener and or the creator into some sort of conversation. I, I'm sometimes like, um, and we don't have to dwell on what I think about when I listen to music, <laughs> but I do, I do think it's funny the way people's brains work. Cause there's a sense with music that's really wonderful. You do just kind of melt away all that thought. Mm. Like there's a kind of cat, weird catnip kind of thing. We just love it so much and we don't totally understand it. It's kind of in the ether by default, it's just kind of this thing that's suspended around us that we can't really grab, and it's just there, and it affects us immediately, and it puts you in, in into the present moment, like in this Buddhist way, mm-hmm. more so than many other I know. Uh, activities or art forms. And then, but yet, it's it's this thing that's so woven, it's so cultural, right? Mm-hmm. It's so contextual, it's always coming from somewhere, it always has a perspective, and that that combination is so fascinating to me. Even as a as a composer, I try to I try to be aware of those things from moment to moment as I'm getting through a section or something, and I'm thinking like, "Oh, that's so funny." There's this like, there's sometimes clearly where I'm just absolutely have no thought, and it's yes. just a kind of intuitive gut gut um, reaction. And sometimes it's it's not. But when people use art and or any form of anything as an escapism. They, they're really using it to come back mm. into themselves, right? So like when I'm at a show or listening to music, I'm using it to ground myself sometimes. Yes, I can escape and I can feel, but is is it really escaping or is it really just reframing yourself and in, in your situation to wherever you are? You know, because I, I sometimes... Oh, I'm so with you on that. Do you know that. what I mean? Yeah, sometimes, even, like, even the word itself, escape, to me, is just so boring. It's I just, just don't understand like, that. But maybe that's I don't just because I don't want to... It's, I'm not looking for an escape. I'm looking actually to be put, like, thrown into a dark hole 
or like a really light sunbeam. I want to be like chucked around, <laughs> you know. Me too. Yeah, <laughs> like you know those too. funny cartoons where it's like the characters like taking a person by their feet and like flinging them around from like floor to the floor, you know, from the right to the left. I don't know if you can picture what I'm. Thinking, <laughs> yes. you know? Yeah, yeah, that's what I want. To ha- I want that to happen. To yeah, me. you want to be bashed around a little bit. Confused. Yes, thank you. Yeah. I love that. Well, let's first talk about your first concert that you ever saw. Because I think that's interesting, obviously, going into what you were listening to when you were younger. Do you remember the first time you saw a live show? Well, I'll start with the first two shows that I lied about going to to be cool in awesome. middle school. That's perfect. Um, Congratulations. Because I told ever. I remember I was like, oh, my God, I'm a liar. As, as I, re- <laughs> I just remember this. I lie but all there the was time. A free it's okay. Greek. It's fine. <laughs> it's so it's so funny that yeah, I, but we do it like for middle... ourselves. It's like your little game oh, that you completely. can play with yourself. I don't mind it at all. I find it fun. <laughs> and it's an adolescent thing too. too. Oh, it's just yeah. like you, there's peer pressure, and you want to kind of sure. set yourself apart or be included or whatever you want to do. But wait, so but, wait, okay. Yeah, so there, what's the first one that you lied about? <laughs> Uh, first one was a Green Day concert. That was, okay. was a free, a free Green Day concert, like last minute on the Esplanade in Boston, and it was on the news. And I remember distinctly being so jealous that I was like watching it on the news, and I was like, <laughs> I cannot believe I'm not. I'm not. I was there. almost old enough to go in to go see a free concert. Like my parents didn't really have the same like ground rules as other parents, so I had a lot of leeway to kind of just like go into the city and come back by train or whatever at a pretty young age. But, and so I was maybe could pitch that as something that. Yeah. That, you could get uh, away with realistic. that. So, totally. <laughs> so as I saw it and it was just like riot or whatever, there was this like mosh pit or something like that. And I was like, yeah, I was there. I remember lying to, <laughs> to this girl. I liked about that. Um, and then what I reaction think, did you I get? Was, did, was she like, oh, fuck, that's so cool. I can't remember. I think there was a lot of excitement around, yeah. that, around that concert. Okay. I think I lied about going to a Pink Floyd Division Bell concert, but maybe I'm making that up. I don't know. I remember somehow <laughs> like so wearing entangled. a Division Bell t-shirt. You're so entangled in your lies. You have in no idea. Li- I'm terrible. <laughs> I, was, I don't even know. And also I have very bad memory. Yes. No, um, I'm, so. I, I hear you on that. Yeah. Okay, so that's the second. But the first concert I went to, yeah, that wasn't in jest or some kind of lie to (laughs) to uh, impress people was, uh, I think it was a 1996 or 1997 Mm -hmm. Fish concert. Oh. the Hartford Civic Center or something like this. Wow. And yeah, it was not good. <laughs> and I and I I really tried. I I I really tried because it was kind of like the suburban thing at the time. It was like fish and like mm-hmm. you know following them and like having different concerts on tape and knowing the differences between sets and all this stuff. And it just seemed like a kind of like fun geeky activity for someone that like music. The thing is, is I never really liked the Grateful Dead. I I tried. I tr- and then I tried to like fish, and I was like, just what is this? I can't. I can't do it. I like the concept of being like deeply ingrained in some kind of thing that's unfolding in front of you. Right. But I didn't. I, re- I didn't respond to it 
at all. But I did go to that concert, I remember. So how, wait, so how old were you? 15 or 14. Oh my God. And so mm. after that, so that definitely wasn't the eureka moment where you were like, this is what I want to do for the, no. unless it, maybe it was, I don't know. I didn't have a eureka moment until I was much older because uh, frankly, I just, I didn't, I couldn't imagine myself as a musician, even though I was, I had been in bands in high school and and done that kind of thing, but I didn't really understand because I was at the end of the day happier to just make music sort of privately and or not collaboratively necessarily when I was uh younger that 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 sort of although I loved bands and I loved records and all that stuff i I really wasn't an aspiration of mine, and I really wanted to to write I really wanted to to be a screenwriter so oh, that's interesting i can i, can I did see, i really i, I think I that. think the film films were the first love, yeah, and so I think maybe sometime later, I went to college in western Massachusetts, a really small school where I had a very, very good professor who he was a, the head of the philosophy department, but he had he was really, really like um, into sort of contemporary music and was writing about it at the time. I remember like Wire and Cabinet and doing all this stuff. He made me, he burned me like a David Berman CD. Oh, wow. And he gave me a William Bazinski record too. Oh, and there was God. some other stuff that he just kind of like handed over to me and said like, hey, there, here's examples of really melodic music that's like introverted and weird. <laughs> like you and that got me really yeah i mean honestly like he kind of just figured me out from day one yeah he just knew and at the time it was it was called post-rock like clearly it definitively was called post-rock like i remember showing up at school and the first friend i made her name was tess and she was in she was in some like emo and math rock bands in high school and she played me some thrill jockey records and I hadn't heard of the label and she was just like showing me this stuff. And I was like, Oh wait, cool. There's like this sort of geeky realm of music that doesn't totally like lose its tether from like melody and rhythm. <laughs> and then, you know, from there like stereo lab and everything else just sort of just like fell into my, my, my immediate purview. Like I started getting more into that stuff. And then I started maybe reflecting on some of the stuff that I had already been really into in high school, a lot of hip hop and like stuff that I heard on Emerson College Radio as a teenager that I loved and started thinking about electronic music as a way to access maybe uh, a wider, uh, a sort of wider, have a wider conception of like what I could do on my own without without a group through electronic music right so you don't you're not restricted as such you felt you weren't restricted yeah yeah that you could almost imitate anything or imagine anything through these sort of sonic um metaphors like different sounds that could that could be suggestive of a drum kit without being one or and I remember, like, it's it. So it was less concerts and more like burnt CDs or whatever. But it was like finesse and oval and that kind of stuff. Really, 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 really sort of set me on that path in college. But also, you know, that was a time in Western Mass where this kind of thing was happening. That Wire magazine called New Weird America for whatever yes. uh, reason. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like Sunburn Hand in the Man and these other kind of like delinquent collectives of weirdo musicians that were just experimenting with 
instrumental, long form improvised music. And that was just around, like Thurston Moore lived out there. Maybe he still does. I don't know. Um, Kim, obviously, Jay Mascus, all these all these figures that had been in bands or were still in bands, but also doing this kind of like low key kind of workshopping of weird music in this uh, little college town. That was really, really important for me because I ended up, you know, like also leaving my being less sort of interior about everything and like going and meeting people and listening to people totally mess up sometimes, you know, and just being like, Oh, it's okay. You can just like improvise. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody knows what you're going to do. Right. Nobody knows what Mm -hmm. you're going to do to begin with. But I feel like even just talking about some of those genres, like even the word like new age can be seen as kind of, can be a pejorative. I mean, of course it doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. And in fact, like even with the score that you've just done for Uncut Gems, it seems like, it it Mm -hmm. seems like new age is a strong influence, but how do you feel then about Mm -hmm. that as a genre? Like as you were forming your own musical identity, how do you feel towards that genre and that term? I think just from a sort of like bratty, but also like psychedelic perspective, like the, that word genre was, always for me just kind of like, oh, that's what they, they, the proverbial they want you to think or whatever. So I was like, I was always a little bit into the idea that that, that, that those definitions were just there to be sort of alchemically messed around with and, and you're supposed to play with them and destroy them and, and do stuff that, that made you question question them and and like anything like there's my intention was never to sort of just to kind of reassess like muzaki terrible music and make you know but at the same time there was just honest to goodness moments on some of those records that just blew my mind they were so meaningful to me like and i would just have these these moments where i was like earnestly just freaking out about some andreas volenweider like (laughs) harp moment or whatever and and those are the records also just on a sort of like economic level like i'd walk into a record store as a college kid in western mass and nobody was buying no one was looking in the sections with the throwaway ecm records or the all that stuff it was just kind of just sitting there in the cutout bin and i just liked the idea that i could grab like 20 of them for like nothing and just dig dig through them looking for these euphoric moments Mm. i was like a kind of like hunting for those moments and trying to get really in touch with them and 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 let them inspire me so talk to me a little bit about then the early process of obviously getting involved with this film how did you connect with the brothers how did you had you seen their previous Mm. films how did it all come about i hadn't seen daddy long legs but i had seen heaven knows what and but i and i kind of vaguely knew them like socially from just being in new york um we were roughly the same age and doing doing stuff in and around the city but at some point um they reached out and i went to their office in midtown it was this at the time this just like this tiny little office somewhere and i and i remember how intense it was as i walked in and they were totally immersed in this world that they were creating they were their their wall their walls were like covered with tapes and dvds there was an akira poster on the wall which was hanging right next to a (laughs) 
an Apple Ferrara poster for um, King of New York. Mm-hmm. And that just even that weird um, contrast, I remember, was like really powerful for I was like, oh, we're cut from the same cloth. Right. Like, there's no rules here. Like, there's only like brutal realism and science fiction. And there's not, and those things, there's like a, a time loop that connects those things. And we're, and so right away we had so much to talk about because primarily because it was state. I remember the first thing Josh told me is he, he's like, you know, we've never made a genre movie. And I think we have to, we have to make a genre movie. And they were talking about good time. So um, I was like really excited to work with them from the get go, just because, it was really natural. It was really comfortable. It wasn't a stretch to imagine working, um, working with these kids because they were, we were all kind of cut from the same cloth. We were all kind of philosophically um, volleying around the same types of ideas about what what rules exist and what rules don't or whatever. Yeah. Did you get involved quite early in the process then with Uncut Gems? Yeah. So Uncut Gems, like it's hard to really remember, but what 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 happened was we did good time and it took about a month and then it 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 worked out we went to Cannes with it we had a great time mm-hmm. and then i was like oh wow i really need to like get back to opn stuff so i hold up i i i hold up in this house in in like south central massachusetts to record age of i was busy with that for a while and then off the sort of off of that i had a sort of a large scale show that I had created for that record, which we called Myriad. And it was, took all of my energy to a convince people to support it. Cause it was um, prohibitively expensive show to put on. Um, and I'm like, for them, it's a risk because I'm like an avant-garde composer, quote unquote, or whatever dumb conception of my career people have. <laughs> And so I'm like, come on, let's do this. It's going to be a big show. It's going to be incredible. And and so there's that struggle that took a lot out of me. We had to build the show. Then play the show. And then at some point that wrapped up and we were just already hatching plans for, for Uncut, which I had known about because they had really, they had been writing it for like 10 years. So that was already something that they had sort of explained to me back going back as far as like before good time i just watched the film i just watched it last night actually and i feel like i feel like i needed i know this is going to sound really nerdy because you don't know me i needed my inhaler like so much because (laughs) i was holding i was like grasping like you know when old ladies grasp onto their pearls i was like holding onto my chest (laughs) because it was so it's all your fault no it's 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 brilliant it it really is quite masterful and obviously a lot of it is attuned to everything that you've done too there's this like undercurrent of anxiety and complete desperation uh i suppose yes. to to both you know to to good time as well as this um but i also it, it's sure. kind of something that i know from the music that you make you're not, you know, you're you're not completely unfamiliar with those feelings. Not to say that yes, you make me want to reach true. for my inhaler, <laughs> but uh, there is a sense that requires a certain energy or adrenaline 
do you need that yeah. from yourself when you're creating lit? like how calm are you because it was i mean we'll we'll dive more deeper into it but it was so it, everything was happening at such a fast pace and there was also those negative moments and moments of complete silence as well but how, how what did you need to do to get to that point such a good question no one's really asked me that um I did try to, I, 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 at some point I started online gambling, um, doing like in-game NBA betting <laughs> on one screen in really? the studio while I was writing and yeah, <laughs> um, to just get into it, yeah, to just, just to get into it yeah. and my, whatever, my bets were very small, but still like for someone that does, doesn't, that do doesn't it. bet, it, it's totally thrilling and insane. So not that I recommend anyone do that. No, um, no. But yeah, in small doses, you could totally see how it can spin out of control and become a bigger problem, or you just simply want a bigger dose of that. Um, so I did, there were some tricks, but the anxiety of also just like, uh, you know, I had like writer's block, some depression, like there was all kinds of things just kind of happening in my life, like sort of leading up to the very important couple months window, um, leading up to like playing the film in its entirety for the producers and all of that stuff. And that was, in, that was enough. I mean, that was yeah. bad enough. Like just having to finish the damn thing. So um, I'm a pretty calm person. Uh, although I'm, I'm, it's, yeah, I, I don't naturally necessarily go to those, that, that level in my own life, but I love sort of embodying it or, kind of imagining it or tinkering with the sort of mechanics of what that might sound like in my own music and in the score and whatever. So there's, um, that's totally natural for me to, to jump in there, but I did, I did appreciate the sort of extra steroidal rush of, of actually betting. Uh, Cause it just like, it makes whatever, activity you're doing instantly insane right it's enhanced and like yeah. yeah it just enhances everything um uh, it's a it's just uh purely a drug so uh there was that yeah it's much more fluid it's not that the music like burns and grinds it's like it's much more fluid and almost listening if i can use that word but oh, even wow, if, yeah. even when it's uses darker tones it's still lighter and it captures that energy via just like this consistent presence. You know, it's just there in the background. Even like that scene with Kevin Garnett struggling to get into the shop. You know, that, that scene is the one where I was like, <gasps> like what oh, yeah. it was so tense and so long. There was buzzing at multiple doors and phone calls and they yes. were knocking on the glass and screaming at each other. Yes. And, but, yes. The sound design in the film is incredible. It's incredible. The, but th there are moments with no music, like I said earlier, that are in, as intense in their silence. That still well. function on that level. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, that they just have a knack for it. They know they really know how to do it. What I used to always say about good time, which is just applies, was the Softy brothers can take the act of just climbing a fence and getting over it or whatever. <laughs> like it's as if you're watching like like War and Peace or something. Mm, yeah. You're like, yeah. <laughs> you're like 
it's just totally insane how they they um they're really and that's the, the that's the lovely thing about the stories they tell they're very very down to earth the problems are very real and yet the way we animate those problems those conflicts or those moments of tension to make them seem as if the world is imploding around you is is the fun of it it's and that's really is where we connect i think is because because we can characterize those very real life situations in very crazy fantastical ways through the music which is something that i kind of do in reverse or in some inverse in my own stuff there's this kind of sense of that music and noise and silence are all these things are metaphors and that you can create a picture of something even though there's nothing specifically to to say or to depict that sort of the the playground i like to to operate in so inverting that and when i'm working on a score specifically with directors that really really are keen to embrace music that way um it's yeah. such a pleasure it's I mean, so fun that fluidity must of course require a close relationship with directing like it's clear that you didn't just write something in response to a simple narrative you know it, it's definitely clear from the get-go so how involved were you f- with the back and forth in that respect like d- were they re-editing in response to some of the direction or or did you have the complete cut and then you filled in the blanks. It was pretty close. It was pretty close. There was things that were changing that did make it difficult because they have such unbelievably anal, yeah, like second to second notes on 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 that on the action in terms of the score and on the on on a beat by beat level. It's like we're going we're going by the frame sometimes to hit certain things and I mean, that's they have really, really like. specific notes. Yeah. Yes. It's a it's it's a lot like a, a ballet or um, it <laughs> yeah. just has a very, very intense sort of emotional wireframe that's beneath all of this stuff. Just because it seems crazy and chaotic doesn't mean that we're in any kind of chaotic state when um uh, when we're making it. So I don't have a whole ton of necessarily pressure to invent any kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm following their map and, mm-hmm. and then I'm basically just working in, in, in reverse a lot of the time I'll say, okay, well, here's the coda. Here's right. this musical thing that they could barely care about. Like, I think <laughs> they love, they love my sense of melody. And that's just like, I just get to do that. Right. So I'm, I'm, I come in super proud of this piece I wrote. That's essentially like I sat down and wrote a song or whatever. They're like, yeah, but how do, you, like, what? Where's the, where's the, where's the texture? Where's the action? Where are the peaks and valleys of this thing? So I'm like, wait a second, can we just talk about the music? <laughs> this is really beautiful. And they're like, no, they don't care. But the fact um, that it works together is something, again, that's a triumph, I suppose, because, you, you know, like, <laughs> but because there's movement in it, right? And especially there's this movement within the, you know, like even like Howard is talking, when he's talking, like everyone's, I feel like everyone's always talking. But then you've also got the music. Yes. So there's there's these multiple layers, but for some weird way, and I don't know what the technicality is behind it, they were able to put these things in separate boxes. So like, yes, the, there was shit going down 
and the music would sound like kind of bedazzled. And then there were moments, yes. you know, where <laughs> st- nothing was happening and the music was kind of dark and ominous. So yes. Th- th- yes. it wasn't only about just a clear juxtaposition, but it was almost like they worked hand in hand, but also weirdly completely separately. I don't know if that makes that's that no I totally make sense that's our built-in innate right. like logic of let's go let's cut against expectations I think we really really we really really like the idea that there's not really cold and hard rules about what what music tells you emotionally even though we really really want to build the roller coaster ride we don't want to say we don't want to say exactly what you're supposed to feel when you're on it. It's a, it, that's the difference between a roller coaster ride and something that's like artistic, right? Right. And a roller coaster ride, they're like, you better be scared or else this is not <laughs> yeah. working or something. Well, it's more Here, like a natural it's, disaster. It's like a natural phenomenon. Yes. <laughs> it's it's like the sublime. You don't. It's everything at once. And and that was also why a lot of the time we were we were actually looking at music that. Um, in terms of inspiration for a score, was like Vangelis was really, really oh, a touchdown. Yeah, that's exa- I wrote Vangelis like literally. If I could show you my notes, that's the first thing I wrote down. <laughs> well, yeah. he's amazing. I, yeah. I, he, and I don't know if I don't know if anyone really ever talks about the the emotion. It's so it's so odd. I think a lot of what people find interesting about Vangelis is sort of biographical or. You know, they just say it's kind of epic or something, or they talk about Blade Runner. Right. Yes, like that he he did something unique for for the instrument or he represented them. But but we dug up these videos on YouTube of him improvising, just sitting around a bunch of keyboards and talking about the way he kind of thinks about, like, the way he's interfacing with these instruments. And he sees the, the different options that he surrounds himself with as different sections of an orchestra. So he's basically, like, they're, like, uh, the only way I can think of it is, like, model architecture or something. It's, like, these synthesizers oh, that's great. Yeah. are these shrunk, shrunken down things <laughs> that represent these massively powerful configurations of, 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 of flesh and bone yes. doing these things that have been done for hundreds of years. And, and then he's going, going into them in, in, intuitively and just playing and just reacting. And he's like, isn't this wonderful? Isn't it beautiful? I can move between this and that. And with, with this fluidity that does, that, that, that is, that's the freshness. That's what you're hearing when you're listening to Evangelist record is this person who's acutely aware of the history of, of, of classical music, but, but now is like this cybernetically enhanced being who's, who's free, who's free to just roam between these, these histories and these ideas and these, and what comes out is just pure. It's so pure. And so we, we, we set up the studio in a, in a sense to, to replicate that a little bit, you know, in our own way, but we wanted to get away from just that sort of multi-tracking kind of yes, very, very lame, like bit by bit, layer by layer sort of thing that's so played out. Everyone does, you know, these epic things in, in logic or pro tools or whatever, because they just sit around all day layering stuff. But, and I'm saying everyone including me, I got really sick of that. And we approached the studio that way too, in a sense that 
all the synths came out of storage, everything was hardwired, everything was on, um, and there was a kind of a sense of play. Um, so that that was that was really um, that was a gratuitously fun for me. It definitely sure. feels more elaborate than if you had to compare, you know, than the Good Time score. Pause the podcast. Pause the podcast. It's that time of year to start thinking about making a list and checking it twice. A list of live event tickets, that is. And whether it's a sold-out basketball game or your favorite band stadium tour, there's no better way to celebrate the season than grabbing tickets on StubHub for you and your family and your friends. Need gifts for your sister who loves metal, your coworker who's a hockey mega fan, and your Broadway-addicted dad? StubHub is your one-stop shop for gifts that will thrill everyone on your list. Better yet, grab an extra ticket for yourself and share some quality time with friends and loved ones over the holidays. StubHub allows you to get more live than anywhere else. With the widest range of events and over 10 million tickets worldwide, StubHub also has the best selection of tickets. Sometimes you want front row, sometimes you want balcony. Mm. Whatever the case, StubHub will help you find what you're looking for. So, head to StubHub.com, S-T-U-B-H-U-B.com, or their user-friendly app today to find the best selection of tickets to any event. StubHub, be there. Well, I think early on in the in the process, Josh Softy and I talked about like um, uh, an orchestral synth score, and I so I dug up this, I guess this rejected score for for Alien Nation uh, that Jerry Goldsmith had yes. done. Like, someone else, yeah, like someone else had ended up um, scoring it, but there's there's Jerry's original scores out there, and I had heard it, and it was just like this nice mixture of uh, synth stuff with orchestra and and um and of course evangelist stuff as we just discussed which is sort of like you know a a kind of hallucination of an orchestra through the through the synthesizer so we were we were thinking about that and then at some point you know i'm doing the i'm doing the stuff and it's working out but then we're starting to ask ourselves questions like hey wouldn't it be cool if this was all kind of you know, hugged by other instruments and let's get some sort of organic, organic contrast going here. So we started pulling in some of, you know, people we knew, people we didn't know, um, um, uh, uh, Eli Kessler, who's a percussionist who I had worked with on a live show. He was drumming in my, uh, ensemble for, for myriad for age of, um, uh, came through and added some stuff, and I worked with a saxophone player who also played flute named Mario Castro, who's a guy in the city that's really, really talented that my hey. engineer knew. And so we had done all of this stuff with flute, uh, Mellotron flutes. And so Mario kind of traced over that and did his own very interesting arrangements, sort of following what I had written on keyboard, played it on flute, and did some harmony stuff. Um, just contributions from singers and all kinds of stuff was happening. Um, and that really kind of enriched, enriched the whole thing. I think everyone was really stoked on it. Like once those, those very human textures were in there primarily because the, the you know, Howard Ratner is just dripping. He's just visceral. He's a human, he's a real human being. And you feel that in the film and, 
and we we wanted uh, we wanted that to be somehow a little bit reflected in the score if we could do it. So. so you mean by bringing in all these people who had different sets of skills, you could really hone in on that humanism because it was so varied and not just coming from one sort of source. Yeah, exactly. That, right. That there was this sort of core, this sort of nucleus to the score that was Howard Ratner, and then he's surrounded by all of these people and all of these He's either carnival barking and trying to convince people to do things and selling stuff, which, which to me, which to me sounded very soloistic. You know, like when you get a sales pitch, it's like sure. it's not that different than a saxophone solo. <laughs> so, so, I see what you mean. You know, I mean, there's that. Ex- I'm just thinking now about the sax because my ear went to it. There's that ex- after an extended silence in his empty apartment. There's that kind of swank saxophone as he returns to yeah. his home. So it's almost taking exactly. him from the one place to the other. But that's interesting to use that as well as a as another character almost because you're creating that layer of the personality that you might not see. Through or here through the dialogue, you've almost created that through the music. Yeah, that busyness and density of talk of yes. of, of, of New York of the New York kind of discursive sound. You know that that's sort of the, there's a poetry to it to talking and to and to the sort of debate and the sort of joking around and teasing each other and one-upping each other and all that stuff that to me is very soloistic it's just a kind of like a language and music it's sort of virtuosic language so it was fun to, to play with that kind of stuff i can imagine so talking about obviously the way that you all work together and then bringing all these instruments in was there anything or any instrument that you played on that felt this is exactly this is perfect this is exactly what i'm needing to do Anything new that you hadn't maybe worked on before? Well, we got really... I would say two things. One, Mario Castro's playing the flute and the saxophone to me. It's just... That is is so much part of this guy. I I can't think of the score without it. And Mario's contributions are just phenomenal. But um, for me personally, it was also like the very serendipitous um, um, timing with hooking up with Moog at around mm-hmm. the time when I started writing the score and then rolling out this new synthesizer, which was, it's called the Moog One. And I had always wanted a Moog, but I'm not much of a monosynth player. I like, mm-hmm. you know, I like a polysynth. I like to play chords and I like to play bass with my left hand and stuff like that. So they had just made this beast of a synth that, you know, had, you know, multiple voices that you could play at the same time. So that was new for them. Um, and I told them about the score and they were really, um, they were pretty chuffed on the idea of like working together. So they sent one over, I fell in love with the instrument, I started writing. Yeah. So it, it, that instrument itself became a big, I would just look forward, I'd wake up in the morning and like, like, like a little kid that just wants to go play with his his new, his new GI Joe or whatever. (laughs) It was like... I mean, that Moog is beautiful. I need to look it up again. I remember when it first came out at the beginning of the year, uh, or when they first, it's, um, but it's still polyphonic. There's still, I'm just just trying to remember what's in it. That's the genius of it because it's basically like a modular system. Exactly. So it's like, you know, for people like me, instead 
that are kind of like dumbbells Mm -hmm. (laughs) that can't like think that way like I just don't I'm just not a modular geek like Mm. as much as I appreciate it I just not I'm a player and being able to sort of effortlessly move between the different sections of the synthesizer and the way that they designed it you can modulate stuff like just in a flash like it's literally it's you press a button and you and the next knob that you twist you're you've made that connection that that routing so so no wires and the ability to just like shred as you would any old keyboard um and it sounds beautiful it's it's just really really it's really really excellent it's such a fantastic a piece of work that you've created but I also think that how it works within the context and the atmosphere of just what just visually and obviously I've seen you perform uh, over the years and you know prior to hearing even your schoolwork and back then it already seemed like you had this great sense of visual and this you know kind of th- that impact of multimedia had had been you know surrounding mm-hmm. your work so how do you mm-hmm. feel just looking at all the instruments and all the people that you worked with and looking at the storyline how what was the goal for you in terms of the atmosphere because obviously you needed mm. to get across the story as well as you possibly could because that's the goal of a score right but what was your idea in terms of how it would feel I don't even know if this makes sense, but how it would yeah. feel visually, like because you can almost because yes. you can hear it, but you can see, you can see it all winding and wiring and building, you know. Well, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. I mean, I from from the from the get go, I I kind of identified a feeling I had about the film, which was that it's it's Howard's story, but there's this there's this interplay of the outside world mm-hmm. and that's a busy world, that's a dense world. And there's, there's many, many voices and many, many um, sort of superficial desires. And there's a, a lot of things going on. It's a busy, busy, energetic kind of world filled with people. It's society, mm-hmm. really. It's his, it's his dealing with people and it's him dealing with his sort of um, place in it. And then there's this sort of, interior world which is hinted at and is described kind of very beautifully at the beginning and the end of the film and without going into detail it's 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 a it's a spiritual communion with with, with, it's an it's a place devoid of of people you know blabbing on and on (laughs) this and that and howard howard kind of is at the crossing point and and so I knew that really, really anchored me, right? Because I just knew that it had to do both of those things. It needed to have that sort of chaos of, of the city and the chaos of Howard's desires, but it had to also kind of fall back and, and dissipate and and all that fragmented stuff just needed to get smoothed over into this other world that's kind of the, his, you know, the, the spiritual world that, that's teased, that's teased so beautifully in the film so so that really that really is what what when i listen to the scripts what i feel it's a kind of a a little bit schizophrenic in that way that 
that Howard's life is just a little bit compartmentalized the way that Howard is. You know, he has his Long Island thing, he has his Midtown thing, he has all, uh, and he's trying to keep all of these pieces, he's trying to keep everything going. But at the end of the day, his he's he's a fool. He doesn't know he doesn't know how to do it, and he makes bad decisions. It doesn't mean that his dreams are wrong or that his desire to to sort of to succeed or to to overcome all of these things is wrong. He's just he's just is who he is. I don't want to give too much away, obviously, for people who will listen to this next week and hadn't you know haven't watched the film. But creating that idea about music through a school, which I'm not surprised now that you wanted to be a screenwriter because creating that idea. It's very difficult to to push that across, you know. Like, do you follow other scores? Mm-hmm. Like, have any other s- scores from this year or in the past really affected you and the way that you thought about dialogue and visuals and filmmaking in that light? You know what? It's it's a good question, but I uh, it's funny. It's uh, in some ways I'm really lucky. I get to work with composers that for them. Until one time, I heard Josh say something like we don't even know we can't even relate to to the the term underscore for us it's 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 got to be overscore <laughs> and so so of course it's 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 hard for me to compare because i get to to indulge in so much of my own sort of thinking and my own sort of density and, and all of the stuff that is 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 typically discouraged um in a lot of what we see these days, but um, I think. What do you I mean is discouraged? I, I do think you mean like overly. Well, if you want, yeah, like overly Victorian television series that that use score to to help the audience get ahead of emotions because they're just trying to tell a story, and I don't relate to that. I don't particularly like it. Of course, there's, you know, I thought what Hilder did with the Joker this year mm. was 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 good. I I thought I thought um. Randy's score was very subtle as, as usual you know his scores are incredible mm. his themes are incredible I mean they're, he's just on another level but for me it's it, it always comes back to, to Mika Levy and her work because I think she's one of the best and when we talk about challenges or things we like or things we get confused about when we're doing score projects like that we often agree and so I think she's someone She's someone that sees it similarly. Yeah, she she did uh, under the skin. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that score and I I mean the Jackie score. I, I think about it a lot actually. Yeah. I think she just did such a incredible job with it. But there's a movement of kind of fascinating experimental scores. You know, like people like Haxon mm-hmm. Cloak and Colin Stetson. Mika also mm-hmm. is in that l- mm-hmm. list. In addition to yourself, what is it about current cinema that allows for that kind of experimentation? When I know you mentioned just a moment ago that it's kind of frowned upon, but it really it's almost coming more to the fore than ever. Well, a di- with a director like Ari, yeah, sure. Yeah, but, I mean, I don't. I, I mean, it, it all depends. I mean, Ari is is gonna is gonna do that every time because he's he's just sees the whole every aspect of the film needs to kind of be integrated and be and have and have the right kind of trajectory to to complete the film so of course there's plenty there's of course there's lots of examples of, of people doing that kind of thing um 
what what is it about? I don't know. I think it's just maybe like we're all just kind of exhausted of seeing the same old <laughs> Victorian garbage on Netflix. Like we want to see real stories. Yes, but I like that you said that there's almost like an a, an idea now where music can not only just assist telling the story, but then I suppose when you when you look at movies like Uncut Gems and like even your first score, which was for Sophia, you know, the Bling Ring. Like even stuff oh, like yeah. that, uh, you look at it and you wonder what is music and scoring for? What is it in that context? What is storytelling? You know, if it isn't just the simple A to B, and I suppose that that's kind of what I'm fascinated about. When you do mention Mika, and uh, I, I know I mentioned Colin Stetson, also it's a real energy, is right? What it is like my favorite composers. It's like someone like Jack Nietzsche. Or it's like you can't avoid them. And it's maybe you can say, well, sure. Like sometimes that's it's for the better that that these things are just functional. And obviously, I like going to the Met and going to the, you know, ancient Egypt section and looking at pottery. I don't want the pottery to, we don't need necessarily a, a Sofia Coppola or Martin Scorsese of, of pottery. But sometimes, <laughs> I wouldn't but say sometimes, no, but yeah. sometimes we do. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes when it works, when it's the right chemistry, when it's the right alchemy happening, um, to me, I've always personally just, I want. I want the biggest shot in the arm I can get of that stuff when it's good. I want to hear the, I want to hear the, a true voice emerge, whether it's costume or, or the music in the film doesn't matter. It's all the same to me. It's all, it's all people just kind of giving it their all, you know, that's when you feel that uh, on a film, it's really exciting. So I just, I, I tend to just selfishly just want that as a fan. I, I kind of want things like that. But looking back at the whole process and that entire adventure now, from the first day of kind of filming and or working on the on the film to now as it's coming out, how do you feel about the film now with it in the rearview mirror almost? Like, are you able to look at it objectively in that light? Like, <laughs> as, as a film? I really can't. I, I know. Yeah. I still don't because it just feels like yesterday we were working on it so i haven't really totally it helps to see to hear other people discuss it but i no i don't know maybe i never will but it, it's yeah for for me meeting also a softy brothers film is is a kind of version of a family and everyone's pretty much kind of in the soup together and so when i watch the film i think a lot about not just kind of what's on the screen but i actually think about all this like toil and <laughs> torment and exhaustion right. and everyone doing their best and things. so it is kind of hard about i but i love i i really do love the film that way it's like a little picture book for me of of everyone's hard work um but unfortunately maybe some of the appeal of the sort of the ineffable thing about you know you watch a movie and you're just kind of dwarfed by it there was a moment at tell your ride where we were all watching from the like hallway right outside the theater mm-hmm. and there was a whole bunch of us we were all sort of gathered around uh, around adam who was sitting and he was kind of like the grandpa at a at a holiday <laughs> party or something that everyone kind of gathers around and listens to. and we were all just leaning on the ground watching the thing and going on the roller coaster ride together for the first time and it was so so sweet and i thought it was a very very beautiful 
um, I thought it was a very, very beautiful film with a lot of heart. And, and uh, I have to remind myself of that because uh, uh, it's easy to, to, to um, you know, having worked on it for, to let that get away from me. How, of course. But I think that that's wonderful as well. I don't think that there's a way in and out. I think that there's just, you know, as long as you can see how, what kind of impact, I suppose, well, maybe not even that. I, I, I suppose it's just good to be able to enjoy your work as well because there's so like i i remember sure. talking to hans zimmer last year about his blade runner movie and he was just like mm -hmm. i don't want to talk much about it <laughs> um Aww, he, yeah. he wanted to talk about it but he was so distant from it already working on so many other projects that i think um oh, sometimes sure. it's good it's to, just exhausting it's it exhausting be. exactly but so when you get kind of accustomed to a routine whilst you're composing and that working with the safety brothers and adam and all of them do you notice yourself changing and shifting the way that you work or have you have you also not been able to really sit outside of that idea no i think i think um i don't tend to to i don't tend to see myself in a third person i mean uh when you ask me that i guess uh you know having made records on my own for 10 years but also collaborating and producing records helping people out or running a label or doing these different things i've done i'm pretty comfortable in both in both modes but um this film was like an experiment where the score was an experiment where every week we decided, Hey, let's, let's give this a shot. Let's bring this person in. And, and so in retrospect, maybe, um, there was a, an openness, right? It was like, it, it rubs off on everybody. And when also when you have the director in there, in the studio with you, in the soup, working with you and meeting the player, in a sense, they also become another producer. and that gives you energy and then you don't have to bear the brunt of, uh, of it so much. I think there was an openness, there was a warmth, there was a, a sense of adventure and, and optimism that, that kind of got us through some of the exhausting shit, you know? Yeah, I know we chatted about the Sophia's um, film and you working on, on that score. And I know that at the same time, I think it was the same time you were touring opening for nine inch nails was that the same time and it was after yeah afterwards it was after sometime after yeah so i, I mean that band so, obviously I mean, Sophia was before that yeah. yes okay so that band obviously comes from the industrial world trent is like you know he's gained a large enough following that experimental music may not necessarily be that crowd's bread and butter but i do think he's obviously now with the watchman and everything it's kind of uh, fascinating to see his trajectory as well but when you were opening for, sure. for them how were the crowds like how was that experience of touring because I I was trying to think of which tour to highlight really because I've seen a, seen you a few times and I didn't know but I, f I thought that might be a good place to to sure. dive no, into that was a very very strange tour uh, <laughs> for me for <laughs> everyone there was Why? you know i opened i i opened the, the night at, there was still a sound garden set that preceded mine so if you can oh. imagine i wasn't necessarily playing 
for Nine Inch Nails fans, I was playing for Soundgarden uh, fans. But it was hilarious God. because, in a sense, it was even more absurd. And my set, which I had designed to essentially be like a really bratty, like kind of a industrial noise version of OPN, was was indeed totally freaking people out. And either they were confused, I think they were compelled to like <laughs> to to notice it, even because it was so strange. So on that level, it was really really fun for me. But it did feel a little bit like um, like an experiment and like pushing people's buttons yes. <laughs> and, and Trent was on board for that. That's what made it so great. I mean, when he first, when we first linked up, it was death grips couldn't do the tour. He asked me what I was thinking about it. Would I do it? And I said, yeah, but I think I'd like to do basically what amounts to like a basement noise set, yeah. but for like, you know, many thousands massive, of people. And he, said, he said, perfect. And, <laughs> So, and that one was really fun, but yeah, you know, I'd walk, I'd walk out on stage and just laugh because I just had no business being there. You know? <laughs> but is that comfy for you? Like, is that ridiculous. almost like, because there aren't any expectations, does that make you feel a little bit more like you could conquer that moment in in a way? Yes. Right. It's so absurd. It's like the matrix. It's just like, <laughs> wait, I can bend time. I can do <laughs> Like, okay, it doesn't matter. And, and also it was just, it, it was, it was very warm. Like I actually, Chris Cornell was really, really, really warm. Uh, hearing about his passing was really shocking to me because he was actually someone that kind of kept a little bit of an eye out for me. Like, you know, I would sound check. And as I was getting off stage, they'd be coming on or the other way around. I think they would sound check first. Right. Um, and he would always have something warm to say or such a nice night. Nice, he was, he was so, so sweet. So I did enjoy, I did enjoy the kind of the warmth and the sort of collegial aspect of the tour and Trent too, but it was totally absurd. Like on a musical level, it was, yeah. it was very strange. It's so sad about his passing, but how wonderful that you can remember somebody like for that. Because I, you, you know, there's not many people yeah. who will look out for you in any aspect, whether or not it's in the music industry or not. You know, people are just kind of self-involved. So the fact that he yeah. did that—that's a really lovely, it's a really lovely thing to remember. It's a good memory. And sure. then you also worked with David Byrne, talking about fucking idols. Um, you worked yeah. on American Utopia, right? Yeah, here I'm gonna step out of the car. Okay. Uh, one second. Your life sounds fucking crazy at the moment. You are like it's, in the car, then you're not I'm, in a car. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so Hollywood. I know. I was like, you're so LA. <laughs> Dude, it's, it's so fucking ridiculous. great. On the, on the so, side? So yeah, but come on. This is great. This is exactly what you need. It's great. Come on. It's just great. I, la- I, I definitely appreciate it. Yeah. No, I remember this moment when um, we were we were premiering gems uh at lincoln center yeah. and we were watching from the side or we were about to go out for a q a or something like this and ronnie bronstein the writer he could tell i was nervous or i was anxious or something and he looked at me he was like damn it's not now when ah. and and he was talking about happiness oh. <laughs> he was talking about no. happiness and 
and I, I, it changed my life, honestly. And I've been trying to sort of think about things that way since because you really yeah. do have to stop. I know. Being so hard on yourself about every little thing. Yeah. Or like, I'm just this kind of person that, like, even, even like getting, you know, like the good life stresses me out to no end. It's like, I, it's not good to me. It's, a, it's yeah. just a, it's like, oh, well, it's good and no one else gets to have it. What does right. that mean? And all this shit. Yeah. But I, I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to enjoy it. Um, it's so hard to, though. I love that. I'm going to write that down. If not now, when? It's true, though. But you just got to get out of your fucking way. Great? Like, get out of your own way. Great? It's so hard sometimes, yeah, Ronnie though. Really, oh, Ronnie God. Hit, hit it out of the park. Yeah, that's fucking uh, on, great. On the, on the yes. subject of David. David. David and is he was he Zen when you wait? How did that all come about? David was this amazing happy accident. I was in the studio with Twigs and I was working on her album, and David had a session booked in the evening, and the Twigs session ran over, and David was like, "Hey!" and he popped in, and somebody maybe it was an A and R or somebody I don't know. The engineer was like, "Oh, by the way, you should meet Dan." Oh my god. And 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 David right away said, "Will you will you crit my songs basically?" <laughs> what? And, and so I was like, "Yeah, sure." And that's exactly how David operates. Like yeah. he's immediately like, "Let's get real. Let's look at this sort of qualitatively." Yeah. <laughs> he's, he has he has no real like ego. It's he's just purely like doing it and approaching it rationally and um it's still refreshing but anyway so yeah i listened and then i thought about it and then i said here's what i think and then about a week later he was like hey would you do you have any do you have any music do you want to do that again you want to write something you want to get involved so so that's how that that happened do you work like that as well like pop your head into a studio if you hear something like how immediate are you with that kind of thing? I don't have the I don't have the gumption to to do that. A lot of the times I'm pretty I'm really pretty shy um, around like and also knowing that the studio is kind of like this sanctified thing where it's right. like people are stressed out or they're embarrassed or like, yes. or like in the zone or really pumped up or like on drugs or whatever. It's yeah. just like always a weird place. <laughs> Um, so I'm like, I, I don't know. I wasn't invited. I'm not gonna, you know, maybe when I'm with the, with the passing of time and whatever was going to retain or whatever, I, I'll, I'll be more likely to say, Hey, maybe I can just pop in here. But, um, at the moment, no, I'm not a very brave person. I don't like to interrupt anyone's work, but, um, he does have such a zen. He came on the show very early on when I first started it because the inspiration behind the name is obviously. Then he was very kind about it and very immediate in his. He was very. He wasn't. It wasn't that he was warm. He's just very um, to the point. He knows exactly what he's thinking, and there's no, there's no doubt there, which I found incredible. Did you find that when you were actually working with him? Oh, he is so incredible to work. I, I, I don't know. There's um, he's really, really the kind of the kind of artist in the studio that when he, you're there because he's already 
he's already decided like right you're good and then <laughs> do your thing like yes if there's some kind of technical you know like a kind of an arrangement problem or something he perceives as like going pear-shaped he'll tell you but generally he's not stopping you or interrupting you from doing anything he's really really just trying to get you in your natural element like on some David Attenborough shit like he's really (laughs) he's really like with it that way his eyes are kind of wired. You're right. It is. It does feel like that. That's one of the best. Uh, his latest tour that he's been doing for the last year and a bit is one of the best shows I've seen. Uh, it's just, it, it's phenomenal. I, lo- I really love it. But so going from David Byrne, what is now happening in the future for you? What, what, where do you go? How does one take that musical or artistic approach to what you've done now with this film and uh, had the kind of year that you've had and take that into the things that you're working on now. Uh, I'm going to do what I usually do after a score, which is like run feverishly back to my OPN <laughs> stuff and hide. <laughs> um, what? Oh, so is, but that's a that. safe space. That's a safe space then for you. I didn't, I didn't say that. I won't use that term, but you said it, um, but Okay. I mean, a comfort um, zone, I meant. I don't mean the radicalized <laughs> safe space. I meant comfort zone. <laughs> no, no, I'm purely just being, um, I'm just A brat. No, it is, you're right. It is a safe space, right? It's like the, it's, it's the thing you know best. And it's also just the, the desire to just like be selfish and do things for you and, and just also just have fun with absolutely no like plan is my plan is like to just go in there and just uh try stuff out and i do really want to make a i do want to really make another OPN record so that's that is the plan have you started it yet i've started in the sense that i have voicemails with like bizarre like (laughs) like melodies and like whatever strange like beatboxing or something Oh, that's great. Do you ever feel like you'll write a, your own screenplay? Do you feel like you'll ever do that and go into that world? <laughs> um, I guess I shouldn't rule it out, but I, I don't necessarily think that uh, it would begin with writing at this point. I, I, I do think that directing would be something I'd like to do again. Not to ever compare music video directing with doing a feature or even a short narrative kind of thing because not dealing with, you know, dialogue or whatever sound other than a piece of music and then basically just allowing interesting things to happen that are untethered to, you know, speech and plotting, carefully plotting out people's movements and stuff like that. Um, I, I do. I did really enjoy the that process of directing Black Snow, so maybe there would be some some scenario in which I would consider um, a project if someone was to indulge me with that. But at the moment, no. I really do feel like making an album, uh, seeing what it, hearing it, and reflecting on that for a second, and seeing if if it's if it's something I'd want to perform out, play out, and. And getting back to to um, scoring films is really to me where it's at. 
That's wonderful. I'm so glad that you had a good experience, especially because it really does show. I it's I, I just feel like there's a way to elevate one's own self in your art and your career, and it's definitely happening. Like I can see it happening to you. Well, I can hear, okay. you know, that you had a good experience well, thank with you. it. I don't know if that's a weird thing to say. Is that a weird thing to say? <laughs> no, it's a totally, it's totally kind. Thank you. I appreciate that. But thank you so much for your time. I just have so much to ask you. I don't know why. Suddenly it's just opened up a vault of things. So thank <laughs> you. Great. Thank you so much for, for indulging um, the questions yeah, and being very present, you know, in all of them. So what did Lonnie say? If not now, when? No. Yeah, if not now, when? That's what Lonnie <laughs> said, and I, I'm serious. It's really so true. I love it. I'm, I've written it down. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm a sucker for uh, mantras and constant uh, <laughs> affirmations. So, <laughs> well, maybe you should move to LA too. Oh, no. Maybe I should because it's fucking cold in Chicago and I'm like dying. Yeah, get out of, yeah. give yourself a little break. Oh my God. Well, thank you so it's much. Therapeutic, these LA visits. <laughs> You sound so LA. What are you going to put some Palo Santo around you now? You're going to light some Palo Santo oh and sage, <laughs> sage your home. Who, who <laughs> am I? This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble. We'd like to thank Dean Berger and Daniel Brater for additional music, as well as the Consequence Podcast Network. Hey! If you've listened this far, why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too. For information on new episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at TMBTGPod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show. Thanks again and I miss you already. During the holiday season, everyone's trying to get you to buy more stuff. Instead, head to StubHub so you can celebrate the season at a game or show. Take the whole family to the ballet, bang on the glass at a hockey game, or sing along with your favorite artist at a concert. Hey, we definitely count that as caroling. StubHub has the best selection of seats for all the holiday events you want to experience with your loved ones, and every ticket is 100% guaranteed. Get to StubHub.com or their user-friendly app today. StubHub. S-T-U-B-H-U-B. Be there. Consequence Podcast Network.